uh, last three weeks, we've been talking about whether or not it's possible to prove the existence of God. Uh, my answer there might surprise you from a few weeks ago. You can find that sermon uh, online, uh, either on our uh, website, thestory.church, or uh, on our uh, Vimeo. Vimeo, Vimeo. Raise your hand, Vimeo. Raise your hand, Vimeo voters. Raise your hand, Vimeo voters. Good, I'm with you, Vimeo. Vimeo sounds frou-frou and pretentious, doesn't it? So we'll stick with Vimeo. It's on our Vimeo uh, page, vimeo.com slash the story Houston. Uh, and we also have a podcast, uh, which you can find on SoundCloud, the story Houston's podcast. So uh, two weeks, three weeks ago, we asked, uh, is it possible to prove the existence of God? Two weeks ago, we said, who is this guy we call Jesus and why does he matter so much? Uh, last week, we said, uh, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? Uh, do I have to be a holy roller if I'm going to accept the Holy Spirit in my life? Um, and then today, we're going to talk about the church. Uh, what is church for? And I think this is a really important question for us to figure out. <laughs> because some of us have been going to church our whole lives. And you might think, well, church is for Sunday mornings. Church is my routine. It's my habit. It's my rhythm. It's my, where my friends are. Uh, church is to make me feel better about myself. You know, I, I don't know how you answer that question, but I hope you have an answer. And uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about how to formulate an answer that makes sense. But my sense is that a lot of us don't really know what church is for. And a lot of us, if we stop and think about it, we might struggle to figure out why we're so compelled to give our time and money to this thing we call church. Have you thought about that? I mean, why give a chunk of your weekend, every weekend, to go to church? Does that ever cross your mind when you roll out of bed on a Sunday morning? Man, it, just coffee and meet the press sounds really good today or whatever, you know. Why go to church on your weekend? You're all very busy people. Why uh, give your money to church, you know? Uh, I mean, it's, you've got obligations. You've got bills to pay. Some of you got a mortgage. Some of you've got kids to save up for their college funds. Some of you want to take vacations. And even if you're feeling charitable, who says giving to the church is the best way to be charitable? Why is church the best charity that you can give to? Why is there such a sense of obligation around financial support? of the church. That to me has always been kind of a sticky point as a, I, I'm a skeptic, you know, at heart. I'm like, well, why do they want everybody's money? And then I started being a pastor and I was like, come on, come on, let's give money. And you know, you got to watch that stuff. Like why, why is the church so adamant about money so often? That can be a real sticking point for a lot of people. Because if we're honest, the church doesn't exactly have the greatest track record in terms of integrity and, you know, being upstanding and doing the right thing. Throughout history, just this chilling list of atrocities that has been committed in the name of Jesus, atrocities committed by the church, you know, uh, and we all know the biggies. We know about the inquisitions and we know about uh, you know, the Knights Templar, maybe, and we know about the Crusades. Some of you know about those things. And certainly, uh, some of you know about uh, ex-gay camps from like the 80s and early 90s that left thousands of young people, some of them suicidal at the end of this, you know, Christian process or whatever. It's just horrific. 
And then we had the Christian music of the mid-90s to late-90s that left the rest of us feeling suicidal. And it was almost as horrific. And, you know, there's just one atrocity after another. And a lot of the atrocities the church has committed has been against our own, against Christians, you know. It's not excusing the others. That's equally awful. But, I mean, the list just goes on and on. There were the... Uh, for a thousand years or so, there were the, uh, there, there were, um, what do you call them, the uh, indulgences, where uh, the church taught the people that for the right price, uh, you could buy your forgiveness. And if you gave the right amount, then not only could you be forgiven, but for the low, low price of whatever your priest tells you to give, you can buy grandma's ticket out of purgatory and into heaven. If you don't have the money today, I mean, poor grandma, you should work harder and save more, you know, and come back. But, uh, you know, just horrific things and lies that have been told by the church. And, of course, um, you know, we, we had others, like the guy that translated the Bible into English for the first time. I mean, the church arrested that guy for making the Bible more accessible to common folk. Uh, because for a thousand years, the church leaders preferred the scriptures to be kept in a language no one spoke or understood. Why? Because knowledge is power. And it's easier to scare people into submission when they're afraid of you, when they're ignorant. Uh, and so uh, they took the guy that translated the Bible in English for the first time and arrested him. And uh, they strangled him and they burned him at the stake. One of thousands of Christians that face judgment by, its, by their own church, you know. There were the witch trials. Everybody knows about the Salem witch trials, but for two centuries before Salem ever happened, witch trials were happening throughout Europe all the time. You know, uh, women who were a little too smart, maybe a little too outspoken, a little too aggressive, they could be charged by a priest or any Christian man uh, with witchcraft. And then, of course, there was the trial, which was always very fair and balanced, and it was always uh, evidence-based and a very objective process. Just kidding, which is, uh, sorry, which is, where are my witches at? Uh, LOL, it's just JK, you know, uh, that's not how it worked. Uh, in fact, they would bring you in and strip you down, and the priest would examine your body for moles. And moles, I guess, were signs of the devil. And another sign that uh, I see husbands looking at their wives. <laughs> oh, never mind. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there, there was another uh, evidence, uh, another piece of evidence that made you guilty as a witch was if you got scared during interrogation. If you're being interrogated by a bunch of priests for being a witch, if you got scared, then you must be a witch. I mean, that's pretty unfair, right? But the, the worst test of all was the swim test. Some of you have heard about the swim test where they threw you in a bunch of water, a pool of water, and if you could swim, then clearly you were a witch because only the devil could teach a woman to swim, I guess. And uh, if you weren't a, a witch, uh, well, the good news is you're not a witch. <laughs> the bad news is that you don't know how to swim, so sorry. You know, enjoy heaven. Just these awful things that the church has, has done. And, uh, you know, historians estimate like 700,000 women were, uh, were convicted of witchcraft in Europe between the 12th and 14th centuries. And this is the kind of stuff that makes my blood boil. You know, this merciless uh, kind of institution that the church has become at different chapters in its history 
uh, and not even stopping with the women who were accused of witchcraft, but going after their families, going after their pets. Hundreds of thousands of cats were burned in Europe between the 12th and 14th century, which I, <laughs> easy, there's somebody amen to that. I, uh, <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, uh, we'll talk after. Um, ironically, this led to the bubonic plague spreading throughout Europe. Um, more quickly than it should have because the plague was carried by rats and there was no cat population to control the rat population. And so, you know, we've been hard on cats uh, here at the story at times. I've uh, expressed my uh, belief uh, that cats are evil and maybe the spawn of Satan. But I, uh, <laughs> I think this story just clearly illustrates that cats really do have their place in this world, you know. On the street, um, <laughs> eating a rat, catching the plague <laughs> on some other continent. Um, now, all, uh, all joking aside here, this kind of stuff I read about, it makes me crazy. And if anything drove me into my season of atheism, it was my desire to make a good difference in the world and my belief that after reading stories like that, the church is not it. The church is not where you go to make a good difference in the world. That's what I believe during my season of agnosticism and atheism. And so, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of people know about the atrocities the church has committed. These we've mentioned and many, many more. And sometimes we Christians give people outside the church the impression that we're just unaware or oblivious of the church's checkered past. We sometimes act as though it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. Well, it did and it does. And sometimes our posture and, uh, you know, outside of these four walls, our posture in the midst of other people who are hurt or have been hurt or are unconvinced about the church's worth or place in society, sometimes our posture has to be one of humility and just repentance. Sometimes the first words of our, out of our mouths should be, I am sorry. We are sorry for the ways that men and women, mostly men, have gotten it wrong and have hurt other people people in the name of Jesus. We are sorry. And we don't believe those things to represent the kind of church, uh, the kind of movement that Jesus uh, came to start. I think people look at Christians that go to church. Non-Christians look at those of us who go to church and they think we come because we, we believe it to be a mandatory part of the Christian experience. Non-Christians, I think, believe Christians go to church at least in part because we want to go to heaven one day, and going to church is the way you go to heaven. And if you don't go to church, maybe your soul's at risk for not going to church, as if when you get to heaven, St. Peter's going to be like, all right, where's your church bulletin from last Sunday? You know, like it's your ticket to get into heaven. And like, like God's going to be mad because clearly God's not all that great if people have done these awful things in his name. He's mad about something. So if you don't go to church, you know, they think that's how we think. And unless we have an alternative answer to why you go to church, they're going to keep thinking that. Now, what I want you to know is that going to church is not a mandatory part of your Christian experience. Going to church is not mandatory for following Jesus. In fact, if you're sitting here out of obligation, thinking about something else every week, I'm, I'm encouraging you to take a few weeks off. 
to go do something else with your Sunday morning until you figure out why you go to church and if you should go back. I mean, it's, it's better to think about God on a fishing boat than it is to think about fishing in the church. Like, you know, like you can, you can find God other places. And I, I want us to be sure that we're owning that today. I don't want you to ever hear me say that, you know, you're guilty, something you owe God something or us something when you don't go to church. Your salvation does not hang in the balance. You can miss a few Sundays and still, you know, <clears throat> get to, to heaven or whatever. It's not an obligation. There's nothing in the Bible that makes going to church mandatory. Anybody want to just go? Y'all ready to leave? So uh, hang in there with me. Uh, I, I, I think we have to get past that because nobody ever had their life changed by a mandatory event, right? The next person that comes to me and says, Jesus really changed my life at that mandatory whatever. That'll be the first time that happens, right? Mandatory things nobody wants to do. That's why they're mandatory. Going to the DMV every couple of years, that's mandatory. So that's an obligation, you know. Having uh, Thanksgiving dinner with uh, your creepy uncle and his new wife everybody hates. Like, that's a mandatory thing, right? Uh, you know, uh, you, you get it. Uh, these obli uh, obligatory things, taxes, paying your taxes, it's an obligatory thing. Church, going to church should not feel like tax day. It should not feel like April 15th when you walk in the door of the church on uh, Sunday morning. I, I want to tell you that Jesus never meant to start some institution you feel obligated to attend. Jesus came so that you could have a life that you are free to live. Jesus came to set us free, not to obligate us to do things that go through the motions. And so I want to ask you a question. Why do you go to church? <clears throat> if somebody asked you that question today, what is the reason that you go to church? How would you answer them? You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in your head or put it on your study guide. Why do you go to church? Is it out of a sense of obligation? Maybe a sense of tradition, maybe because your friends go to church, it's a social thing, or maybe it makes you feel better about yourself. I want to challenge you to say that if you're a churchgoer, this doesn't really apply to newcomers and people that are on the fence of this, but if you're a churchgoer regularly and your answer to the question, why do you go to church, doesn't begin and end with something about Jesus, we need to go back to the start. We need to start over. Hit a reset button and figure all this out again. Uh, and I hope that by the end of this, uh, all of this will make a little bit more sense about why it is we do this thing on Sunday mornings. So I want to share with you a few lies or misconceptions that I think are common in our culture about what church is for and a few truths that the Bible uh, speaks to about what church uh, really is about. Uh, you can follow along with me in your study guides if you like. The first lie or misconception is that the church is a building. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's obvious to everybody. We all learned in Vacation Bible School that the church is not the building. The church is the people or whatever we used to do with our hands. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, we all conceptually know this. But I'm telling you that our language, it betrays us because I think intuitively we understand the church to be nothing more than a building. I will prove this to you the next time you're driving around Houston uh, with some friends in your car and you pass one of those big rectangular buildings with a steeple on top. Point to it and ask your friends what that is. It's going to seem weird and awkward, but just play along with me. What's that thing? And I guarantee you, I'll bet you a dollar, no one in your car will say, oh, that's, uh, that's the building where the church gathers. No one will say that. They'll all say what? That's the church. Because we've come to equate a building, a place, with the church of Jesus. 
And this may seem <clears throat> trivial to you, like it doesn't really matter. I'm telling you that it truly matters a ton. And this mistake happened, I think, when they actually started translating the Bible into Western languages, because the word church isn't a word Jesus ever used. This is where we get confused from Matthew chapter 16. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's great. I know it's a little dark in the house sometimes, but uh, you also have it on your study guides. It'll be on the screens. Matthew 16, verse 17 is where we'll be, 17 and 18. And what's happening, I'll set this up for us. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I picture them kind of around a campfire, and he says, hey, what do people say about me? Who do they think I am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, which was weird because John the Baptist was his cousin, and he had his head cut off and all that details, you know, but uh, the, the other people say you're a prophet, like reincarnated, whatever, and Jesus looked at them and said, what about you guys? Actually, Jesus never said you guys. Jesus said y'all. What about y'all? <laughs> That's true, actually. I'll walk you through the etymology of scripture one day where y'all is in the Bible. Uh, uh, Jesus, there's a plural you in uh, Hebrew and Greek that we don't have, unless you're in Texas, in which case it's y'all. Jesus said, how about y'all? What do y'all say about me? And Simon, who was the oldest disciple, uh, who was one of Jesus' inner circle, he stands up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus stands up next to Simon, so proud of him, and says, Simon, from this moment on, you'll no longer be called Simon. From this moment on, we will call you the rock. Literally, Peter means the rock. And you can sense Peter's ego swelling in front of his boys, you know, like, that's right, boys. The Son of God just called me the rock, you know, like, the rock, whatever. And I don't have rocks. I've got something else. But the rock, you know, he's a fisherman. He's a man's man. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? That's the word we have in English. But I'm telling you, Jesus never used the word church. The word church didn't come around for like 1,600 years the word church is derived from a German word, uh, Kirche, or Kirsch. I don't know how you say it. Somebody speaks German, whatever. Kirsch, Kirsche, and it means place of worship. Jesus never said, upon this rock, I will build my place of worship. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. If you speak Spanish, you know the word for church in Spanish is iglesia. Iglesia is a more accurate translation of what Jesus says, ecclesia, which is a Greek word, a very common secular Greek word that just means a gathering of people called together for a specific purpose. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my gathering of people who are called together according to my purposes. It was never meant to be a place. And y'all, I'm going off script a little bit, but if I have one anxiety right now as the pastor of the story, I love how we have begun. We are organic. We're messy. We're always nimble and changing on our feet. But as we get ready for the next season of our life, going into that new building, as excited as I am, I'm also worried that if we don't watch it, we're just going to become one more, like, you know, hip young church where, you know, the cool kids gather on Sunday morning or whatever, and we have our church in that building. May that never happen at the story. May we always be a church that is about a gathering of people, no matter where it is and what building it is, a gathering of people called together for the specific purposes of Jesus. That gets us to the first truth, which is that the church is a revolution. The Ecclesia of Christ is a revolution. 
The New Testament makes two things very clear about what Jesus' church was meant to be. First of all, Jesus expected his church to spread throughout every nation on earth. And secondly, everywhere the ecclesia of Christ went, life got better. I can't really describe it, how it happened, but even now we see wherever the true ecclesia of Christ goes, the quality of life improves. Poverty meets its match. Education improves. The status of women improves to almost, you know, in some places where they've been oppressed for centuries, they're raised to a level, at least closer to a level of equality with men. Orphans and widows are looked after more. Nobody goes hungry where the true ecclesia of Christ goes. Life changes on the ground. It's not about just converting people to religion. The way of life changes. The economy changes. The way employers treat their employees changes because of what the ecclesia of Christ does to people. Wherever it goes, the ecclesia of Jesus brings a revolution of grace. Acts 2, where the church began, uh, sort of spells this out for us. It says, everyone was amazed. This is the very beginning of it all, you guys. This is our roots right here. The, everyone was amazed by the miracles and wonders the apostles worked. All the Lord's followers often met together, and they shared everything they had. They would sell their property and possessions and give the money to whoever needed it. And day after day, they met together in the temple. They broke bread together in different homes. What's this? Somebody tell me what we call this. They broke bread together in different homes. It's a chapter, right? These are chapter groups, you guys. That's what we are always talking about, Get in a chapter, because that's what the Ecclesia of Christ does. It's not about what happens here. It's not just about what happens here. Most of the church that happens day to day is in y'all's houses with your chapter groups. They shared their food happily and freely while praising God. Everyone liked them, and each day the Lord added to their group others who were being saved. <clears throat> This brings to mind a memory of a church that Gio, uh, my, my wife and co-pastor Gio, we started a church in Kansas City. It was the first church that we planted together. We were 22 or 23 years old, and, uh, and we were near downtown Kansas City in a neighborhood that had transitioned, and this older, sort of dying Methodist church gave us their fellowship hall to start this uh, new church in. And we decided to start this church with a youth group, because if you ever want to start a dynamic, powerful church uh, that's full of energy and life, uh, it better have some young people in it. It better have uh, some students and teenagers in it. They are, even now, uh, in many ways, the, the engine of the stories culture. And so the same was true then. We started with a youth group. <clears throat> a lot of these kids came from, you know, inner city, this neighborhood where there was a lot of crime, a lot of poverty, and a lot of, uh, a lot of drug use. And things were going great. Things were blowing up and moving along, and we were very proud of ourselves and the work that we were doing uh, for people in this neighborhood. One Sunday night, we got a call. Uh, we had to go to the church, they said, because the church had been broken into. The office had been broken into. The door busted in, and the offering from that morning's service was taken. Now, <clears throat> because of the kind of church we had at the time, the offering was something like $42 or something uh, total, uh, which uh, was a lot to lose for us. That was all we had back then, you know, and, uh, and so it, it hurt a lot. Um, but what hurt even more was when the policeman shared with us the description of the suspects. There were three suspects, young kids from the neighborhood. I knew exactly who they were talking about just by the description. There was two brothers and a sister, Jeremy, Orlando, and Jatavia. They were our first three recruits to the church that we were planting. They were there every week, and there was this feeling of just betrayal 
that came over me. I knew they had a hard life. I knew their mom and stepdad were completely strung out on all kinds of drugs. And I knew the three of them all had different dads and all that kind of story that you hear all the time in a city. But still, I was like, how could they do this to us? Part of me was thinking, why not go steal from the Baptists? You know, like, why steal from us? <clears throat> We've been here for you, you know. Like, we opened our doors to you. We took you to Royals games. We took you to Worlds of Fun, which was like an amusement park. Those are places with roller coasters. Houston doesn't know what those, uh, those are roller coasters and rides and stuff, right? So it's like the rodeo, but all the time, right? Um, <laughs> hashtag Astroworld. Oh, hmm. um, so we took them everywhere, you know, and, and so, you know, we, we poured our hearts into these kids and for them to break into our church and take our $40 and break this door down that was worth twice what they stole from us, you know, it just killed me. I called my mentor, who was also kind of my boss, because I had to tell him that he was going to need to give us $40 and a new door. <laughs> and he was like, uh, I was telling him how upset I was at these kids, that they just stabbed me in the back. He said, Eric, man, calm down. He said, these kids have given you a gift. I said, what do you mean they stole from me? He said, no, they've given something to you. He said, now you know you have a church. I said, what do you mean? I know I have a church. They stole our offering money. He said, the church is not a church until stuff starts going missing. And it took me a minute, but what he was trying to say was that the ecclesia of Christ isn't in its truest state or truest form until it's reaching people who are desperate and broken enough to steal from the very ones trying to help them. And until there's that state of brokenness in your place, uh, something's missing. Until things start going missing, you don't really have the church. Now, y'all, please don't start getting any ideas, right? Uh, there's, uh, we have camera surveillance all over nowhere. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but please have mercy. Steal something cheap, okay? Uh, that's all I'm saying. Um, but, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think there's something to this. And it gets us uh, to our next uh, uh, misconception. Or, I'm sorry, uh, second misconception, right? And that is that uh, the church is a safe haven for Christians. The church is a safe haven for Christians. You want to know who is most upset? By that breaking and entering, besides me, the lifelong Christians who belong to that church that was letting us use their fellowship hall, they were shocked. They said, things like this have never happened here. Not until you brought, you know, your kind up in here. <laughs> like, uh, that, that, that doesn't happen at our church. And the, the thinking was, the world outside might be going to hell in a handbasket, but not here in the church this is the one place that doesn't change. We all know each other here. We speak the same language. We have the same politics. We love each other and we trust each other and stuff never goes missing here because the church is a safe place for us. I want to tell you that the church can become addicted to safety. Safety in itself is a good thing, but I think there's such a thing as too much safety. Not in the sense of, you know, how we are with our kids. The church nursery should always be the safest place on earth, I think. We should always vet, strongly vet, anyone who wants to teach our kids in Sunday school and things like that. Background checks the whole nine yards. But sometimes, when you're really being the ecclesia of Christ, sometimes it's better to be sorry than safe. Sometimes it's better to take risks and to love people. It may not be so comfortable to love. 
I believe that um, because the church has been so intent on being safe and secure apart from the outside world, young America has begun to develop a conception of the church that we are uh, boring. In fact, like 88% of young adults in America say Christians are sheltered and that we're out of touch with reality, sheltered and predictable and boring. In one survey, the guy asked a bunch of young Americans to describe, give an analogy for what the church is like. These were three of them. The Titanic, a ship unaware it's about to sink, a hobby that diverts people's attention, and this is my favorite, a pack of domesticated cats, there's the cats again, <clears throat> that look like they're deep in thought but are really just waiting for their next meal. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. Like, it stings. It stings, right? But it's good. It's creative. Uh, but these descriptions are not of the ecclesia of Christ. It's talking about something else, which gets us to the second truth. The church is a rebel base camp. I think we lose sight sometimes of how unsafe the first Christians were. I can't imagine anything more unsafe than winding up upside down on a cross as many of the first Christians did, or in the mouth of a hungry lion. And these people, they died for their faith. The miracle of the first church wasn't that God drew a group of people together that all knew each other and understood each other. The miracle of the first church was that these people came from different countries and cultures that were supposed to be enemies. And for the first time in human history, people willfully joined together across these cultural bounds not for some government or loyalty to some earthly king, but because they all shared an allegiance to the love of God in Christ. And they fed each other and took care of each other, and they changed the world around them wherever they went. That was the miracle of the first church. Unfortunately, there was nothing too safe about it. Romans 12 describes this uh, pretty well, and it's in your study guides as well. Uh, this is Paul talking. I'll start here. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. Let love be genuine, he tells the Christians. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Some of you might be thinking that the first Christians lived in a different world. Of course they were rebellious. They literally had the evil empire bearing down on them, the Roman Empire that they were fighting against. But I'm telling you, not much has changed. I mean, yeah, we don't have Rome anymore, but the first Christians weren't rebelling against Rome. They were rebelling against fear. And we've got to see the difference. The first Christians rebelled against the power of fear that drove them apart. Fear that both government and religion were, you know, uh, oppressing them with. The first Christians rebelled against fear, and that has not changed. If you think for even a moment that there aren't forces in this world right now that want nothing more than for you to be afraid, cowering in fear, buying whatever they're selling you because you're so afraid of what will happen if you don't, you're fooling yourself. Just go home and watch cable news for five minutes. Or better yet, don't. 
cancel your subscription to all cable news channels. They're equally guilty of fear-mongering. They just scare you with different things depending on what your politics are. Be scared of this. Be afraid of that. Because when they have you afraid, they have you where they want you. You'll do whatever they need you to do when you're afraid. But the church is called to rebel against forces of fear. Because when we're not afraid, we're free. And Jesus comes to set us free. When we're not afraid then we receive a stranger as a brother. We don't say, well, keep them away. That might be dangerous. You know, we, we receive strangers with hospitality because that's what Jesus did with us. He saw us as strangers and made us friends in his grace. And when you're no longer afraid, that's when you're free. And that's the rebellion that we're all training for. That's the church. Lie number three, this is maybe the most important one I'll share today. This was the hardest one to write about, hardest one to talk about, but I want to say it. This misconception is that the church exists to meet the needs of Christians. This is a tough one. Because I want to meet the needs of Christians. I think that's part of a church's function, but it can't be the mission of the church. There is a phenomenon in our culture. It is called church hopping. Uh... Church hoppers are the kinds of people that go constantly, consistently from one church to another. The idea of church hopping is that you go to a church only as long as you find it fun, interesting, or you know, up to your standards or whatever. And the minute it gets a little bit boring or a little bit hard, or maybe the leadership changes or the preacher says something you don't agree with politically or whatever, that's your ticket to get out of that church and go find another church because culture has convinced you that you are the most important person in your life. And nothing's more important than you, and you deserve absolute happiness. And if something in your life is not making you happy, you owe it to yourself to go out and find something else, whether it's a new job or a new car or a new house or a new husband or a new church, you know, whatever. Like, that is the, that's the, the, the gist of what's happening in, in our culture right now. I... Uh, this is different than church shopping. Some of you are like, well, I'm here for the first time, and I used to go to a different church. That's, I'm probably not talking about you. Uh, it's okay when you move to a new place or, you know, something happens to your old church, and there's reasons to leave churches. But church hoppers are always the ones after their first visit, right after the service, like after the service today, church hoppers will come up to me and go, oh, M gosh, pastor, you are so much better than my last pastor. Your sermon was so much deeper than his sermons ever were. Oh, M gosh. Like, you know, this church is so much greater than my last church that I just left for no good reason. And, you know, like that is, that is always a red flag for me. Because I know that it's just a matter of time before I'm the last pastor in that person's life, you know, and they're talking to some other pastor about me. Um, but sometimes um, I think we have to be careful about assuming that uh, the church exists to meet uh, our needs first. There's this article in uh, Relevant Magazine, and Tyler Edwards writes in it. He says, a church community can and should provide resources to help you pursue spiritual growth, but it's your responsibility to take advantage of those resources. I don't let myself starve if my wife doesn't cook. I'm a grown man. There is only one person responsible for me not eating and not growing. It's not my wife. It's not the church. It's me. It's me. The Ecclesia of Christ is a gathering of people called together for a specific purpose. And Jesus' purpose, we see it again and again in Scripture, is not to find those who are already found. 
Jesus' driving purpose and passion is for those who haven't been found yet, those who don't know that they're loved yet. If you used to be lost, but now you're found, maybe you've been found your whole life. Congratulations, you've been at Jesus' party for a long time, and that's awesome. But when you're inside the party that Jesus has thrown for you, and he's made a place for you here, part of coming here is understanding that your needs aren't always going to be the most important thing for the church where you are. Because Jesus says, God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And there's 99 of them inside, safe and sound, but there's one that's out there somewhere. And that God, that shepherd, will search ceaselessly, wandering throughout the desert all night if he has to, to find that one lost sheep. And because God's heart beats for that one sheep, our hearts must beat for that one sheep as well. And everything that we do, everything that we plan and program and preach must primarily be for that one sheep that doesn't know he or she is loved yet. But that one sheep for whom Jesus has prepared a place here, but he or she doesn't know it yet. Just like Jesus prepared a place for you here, and you made it, and that's awesome. And now together, let's band together and go find that lost sheep together. That's why we do things like the barn dance. It's not because we can't live without line dancing at the story. We do things like the barn dance because there are people in our culture who feel so upset or so hurt by what the church or what Christians have said or done to them in the past that they wouldn't darken our door if we invited them. But they'll come dance and get to know us and see, hopefully, our prayers that they will see that there is a community of believers that will accept them, love them in a non-judgmental way into a community that will support them and uplift them and be their brothers and sisters for life, that through our witness they will know that God loves them. This is our third truth, that the church exists for the sake of the world. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Not the church, not those who loved him back, but the world. Now, if you came here today and maybe you're still feeling uncertain about where you stand with the church. I just, I need you to hear me say that I understand. And I'm sorry. I am sorry for the ways that Christians have acted, for the things we've sometimes said to alienate the people, the very people that Jesus would go after and love first. And it breaks my heart, just like it probably broke yours. And if you're listening online or watching on uh, Vimeo or whatever you call it, like I want you to know that we understand. I want you to know that we believe Jesus has prepared a place for you here to be enveloped not in religion, not in Methodism, but in relationship. Loving relationship to God and to people who will take you by the hand and love you for who you are with the gracious love of Jesus. And finally, I want to close with this. I just want to say this. If you're one of the people that's a skeptic and you're on the fence about church, I'm begging you to find a way to distinguish between the institutions of man and the ecclesia of Christ. The institutions of man will always underwhelm you. The ecclesia of Christ will always overwhelm you. The institutions of man have done everything in their power 
to bring down the ecclesia of Christ to their level so that they can control it and the people within it. The ecclesia of Christ will not let that happen, even though we've tried for centuries. The ecclesia lives on, and it lives on in powerful ways right here in this room, throughout the city of Houston, across the world, in Africa and China and other places where the ecclesia of Christ is growing like wildfire, and little girls are finally being educated alongside little boys, and women are being lifted up and empowered, and small businesses are growing because they finally have funding to be independent, and people are claiming their freedom over fear because the ecclesia will not be stopped. The Ecclesia of Christ will not be stopped. It is the greatest movement the world has ever seen, and I believe in spite of what guys like me have tried to do in the past and the ways we've tried to screw it up. This is the greatest hope the world has. Not religion, but the gospel that the Ecclesia represents. The gospel that we steward as ambassadors of Christ and his love. I'm not inviting you to church membership today. I don't need you to sign a church covenant or anything like that today. I'm just inviting you through Christ into a relationship with God and with a community of people that will love you, hold you accountable, and accept you, the you that's here today. My prayer is that your response to God's invitation might be yes right now, that it's time you found the community, the gathering of people that works for you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your promises. And in spite of the ways that men and women have distorted those promises, your promise remains. You loved the world so much that you came here yourself know us and love us and sacrifice yourself for us so that we may have hope. We thank you for this good news in Jesus' name. Amen.